Hi, I'm Richard Lang and this is my friend Sam Blight and I'm going to chat with uh, Sam today about seeing. Hi. So Sam, what led up to seeing? What got you interested? Just something about you. Sure. Well, uh, it started, the quest started early for me when I was in my late teens, early 20s and I, I stumbled across um, LSD, which um, gave me a glimpse of something that was very interesting to me. It changed the way I thought about the world, which previous to that was basically what you could call positivist materialism. I thought that everything was made of stuff and uh, that consciousness arose as a kind of byproduct of stuff. And that was severely, that view was severely challenged by my experience with uh, psychedelics. You were a teenager? Or? I was 19, I think, at the, when it, that process started. But I was soon guided, thankfully, by sagacious friends to the work of um, Aldous Huxley and um, to a lesser extent, Timothy Leary and um, uh, Ramdas, who had a way of understanding what that experience was about, which related it to what we could call the perennial philosophy. I think that was Aldous Huxley's phrase. And mm -hmm. uh, the perennial philosophy being a kind of um, the core uh, spiritual realization of all religions and, and all cultures. And uh, it certainly seemed that it corresponded to what I seemed to see on LSD. Mm -hmm. And that there were ways, you know, to get there, traditional ways to get there. And that, that um, using a drug to access that um, was not satisfactory in the end. So, mm -hmm. so I started with um, really Buddhism, I guess. I got interested in Zen and, uh, and then I did um, Vipassana meditation with uh, John Coleman. And that was very helpful. Uh, and I also uh, hooked up with a, uh, an interesting guy in Perth, James Coventry, who... Um, helped me a lot by introducing me to the work of um, uh, Ramana Maharshi and, mm. and The Fourth Way by Gurdjieff, which had mm. some useful stuff in it. But there was a rumour going around at that time that uh, you needed a living master, you know, a living master, otherwise you weren't... A guru. Yeah, you needed a guru, basically. Uh, you couldn't get there by yourself. And there was a fairly baffling array of choice at that time. It was kind of the early 70s. And um, there were lots of guys around. So our little... We formed a little group around this chap, James Coventry, of seekers really uh, and looking for someone who was going to you know do the business for us and uh, the guy who came up trumps and ticked all the boxes at that time was uh, Rajneesh and uh, he seemed to be the most switched on and the most attuned to western uh, thought there are plenty of traditional guys around but we he was he seemed to be incorporating western psychotherapy and uh, uh, existential philosophy and all kinds of stuff like that he also seemed to be saying the same thing as Krishnamurti, who was someone we admired a lot, but in a, in a more um, kind of dynamic and accessible way. Mm -hmm. So we all up, up um, stakes and went off to India for a while. So this was roughly when? This was, um, for me, uh, yeah, well, I went there in 1976. Mm -hmm. That was when I, and I became uh, a disciple of his. And um, that phase lasted about 10 years. And it was very interesting. Uh, there were good things and bad things about it, but uh, I came out of the experience, I guess, to cut a long story short, um, realising that you can't give away your authority to someone else, your spiritual authority. You just can't. It's not a good idea to do that. It's bad for you and it's bad for the other guy. As, mm -hmm. as events around Rajneesh played out, it became pretty obvious that that was the case, you know. So uh, I was helped after that by some interesting people. Um, I, I was helped by the work of A.H. Almas. Um, I didn't meet him, but I read his books. Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, was great. Um, and that led up to, oh, and, uh, Ajishanti, another guy who I became friends with, a very good 
clear, clear teacher. But again, there was a sense that while I understood what they were talking about and I had glimpses of what they were talking about, it was very much got it, again, got it, lost it, got it, lost it. And this was reflected in a lot of the questions they got from people who were trying to put their teachings into practice, that there was a sense that you kind of had it for a little while and you'd go to a workshop or you know, a retreat or something and you'd have it. And then the vicissitudes of everyday life would remove it from you. <laughs> So uh, I hooked up with a very interesting uh, spiritual group in my hometown of Fremantle, uh, led by Pete and Pearl Sumner, an amazing couple who were kind of ex-evangelical um, Christians uh, and blind, who had actually founded Blind Mission uh, Australia and Blind Mission, World Blind Mission. Uh, real movers and shakers, incredible people, but they'd become disaffected with mainstream Christianity. And both of them, in their different ways, had come across what we call non-duality and were interested in um, sharing this with others. So they started a little video group once, uh, it was twice a month initially, uh, showing videos and audio tapes of Eckhart Tolle, who they found helpful. I found out about this group and I was, I was keen on Tolle, so I, I sort of went along to see what was happening. We became very good friends and kind of, it was very strange. The ex-hippie, uh, ex-Rajneeshi, um, me and my wife as well, uh, Nav, uh, just became totally close friends with these two uh, ex-Christians. We'd sort of come up completely opposite sides of the mountain and, and met in the same place. It's very good, and we're still very good friends with them. One of the things they did, though, at this centre was they would invite <coughs> teachers out to speak to us, some of which were helpful, some which were weren't. Were, weren't. But one of them was you, and uh, that was in 2005. And uh, uh, I was dubious at first. I thought the Headless Way sounded a bit strange, uh, but I was willing to give it a crack. And uh, I was struck, the first thing that struck me about you was that you weren't doing the guru thing. I walked into the room and expected everyone to be doing the po-faced spiritual thing, and everyone was sitting around having a chat. And there was, there was this little English pommy guy sitting in the corner there, just sort of looking around, smiling. It was you. And you weren't being guru-like at all. And I, that impressed mm. me straight away. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> My unimpressiveness. Yeah, your unimpressiveness was impressive. So I ticked that. And then, uh, then you said something very interesting right in the introduction. You said, this is about you personally sitting in that chair there. And that was, I liked that because it, a lot of the other teachings I'd come across seemed to try and somehow belittle or deny the personal, you know, or make it the problem. Mm. And uh, the way you said it was very welcoming. It was mm. like the personal wasn't a problem. It was the way we're going to start with, and that was the way we're going to work, and that it was going to be something extremely relevant. So when we did the pointing experiment, I did it with great attention and with predictable results, and that was it. You know, it was like whack. And the space, you know, this huge space, and, and uh, I experienced this feeling of... Um, a combination of embarrassment and relief, and, and here it's been all the time. What was the embarrassment? That I'd been overlooking it for so long. You know, I just, all, this, all this incredibly intense and, and um, quite sincere spiritual inquiry, I'd been looking, I, I know, overlooking it. It was right there, it was right there. You, you said that it was hidden in plain sight, and it's true, it is. It's so close to where you are. It's where you're looking out from. It's the spot you overlook. And I'd been told that. Mm. See, everyone tells you that, but it doesn't help. Mm. Uh, so what I found amazing was the physicality of it. It is not a metaphorical spot or a spiritual spot or a philosophical spot. It's actually where you are <laughs> in physical space. Well, that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So that's how I lost my head. Mm. So how has it uh, developed for you since then in your life? Yeah, uh, well, the actual um, vision is, is what as originally revealed. That, that sort of doesn't change. It's, it's what it is. It's this vast, unchanging space that everything's coming out of and that everything's an appearance of. But um, I certainly found that it, it, once I'd seen it, uh, it wasn't like a case of God had lost it, like the other kind of revelations or intuitions I'd had. Mm. It was, I, I found since then that it's always there when I care to look. Mm. And because of that, I don't obsessively have to kind of cling to it mm. or, or make it some kind of project to kind of keep it going. Mm. I found this very interesting. Mm. And uh, I've thought about this a bit, and I think it's because the experience is essentially non... It's timeless. Mm. It's not affected by time. Mm. So I can ignore it effectively. I don't think I totally ignore it, but I can certainly put my attention into things and events and you know work and whatever I'm doing for long periods of time, not consciously attending to it. When I look back, it's not at all diminished by my, by my ignorance of it. Mm. Whereas the other techniques and things I'd use, like Vipassana, for instance, if you didn't do the meditation for a period of time, you kind of got a bit rusty mm. and it was harder to get back into it and you kind of had to... So there was a kind of sense where I thought of it a bit like hang gliding. You know, when you're flying cross-country, you've, you've, altitude is everything. So you've got to... When the glider's not in lift, it's actually coming down. So you're constantly looking for lift all the time. And those previous spiritual practices that I was doing were a bit like constantly looking for lift and trying not to... And between thermals, if you like, between updrafts, there was this kind of continual descent. But he, this, this approach is not like that. I, I've given up the whole idea of where I am in mm. things. It's well, not necessary. It's huge. Mm. It's absolutely marvellous. And what about in relationships? I know you share it with Navi, your wife. I'm extremely so. lucky in that regard mm. that my partner in life, my wife, Navi, is, is, gets this as strongly, if not more strongly than I do, and uh, we both make use of it every day. In our relationship, it's tremendously important because we re recently we've started working together as well as living together. We built a house together. I mean, we had a house built together. So we've done a lot of things in very close partnership that throw up, you know, at predictably the differences in the way we approach things and do things. And we're both eldest children in our family and used to getting our way. So issues come up, you know, this kind of, and, and this space is ideal for dealing with issues because when, the, when things get a bit tense, you can, it's like an alarm clock. You can immediately go into this. It doesn't make the tension disappear, but it gives you a basis from which you can start a proper back and forth and, and to resolve the issue. Mm. So it's not a magic panacea, but it's a very good platform or foundation for relating in an adult fashion with mm. somebody. And generally in relationships at work? Uh, well, it, 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 I found it in my work as a graphic designer absolutely, uh, extremely precious because um, the face-to-no-face -face thing is ideal for any kind of relating to human beings. Mm. But in this instance, um, one of the most important things about my job is to get what the client wants and to get what the client's project actually needs. So it's called taking the brief in the game. Mm. So 
if you're sitting there with a bunch of parameters in your head and you're trying to fit what that person's saying into what you want to do, you end up with misunderstandings and um, you, it's very hard to get, get right what they want. And if you, if you get that wrong, it's very hard to get the job right. So getting the brief right is about 90% I've found of getting the job done properly. Understanding what they want. Understanding what they want. And, and understanding not only what they want, but what's required in the, in the kind of between the cracks. Because often something will come out of what they're saying and you'll be able to reflect back to them. And there's a process that develops that clarifies what's required. And this space just does that. If I'm, not, if I'm absent for that person, if I get out of the way for them, they may not be consciously aware of that, but they sense something and they become more forthcoming. They feel less uh, threatened. They feel um, more like they can uh, really get into the, what they want to say without, without feeling uh, they might be saying something wrong or, you know, or being naive. or you Because know, cl- people are very worried about coming across as being um, somehow not up to the task. Uh, giving themselves away, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so they can often be very kind of guarded, and that guardedness doesn't um, doesn't help when you try to get the goods on what what the project needs. So if you're gone from the scene, that that is picked up by the other person. Not only in that situation, I'd suggest, but but anywhere you try this out, and they loosen up. You know, it's like you've given them a glass of beer or something. They start loosening up, and and it all works a lot better, and it's a lot more pleasurable process too. And you make friends with people that way. You know. And you're open to the process and new things come out of the That's process right. that you had no idea about. That's right. That and are can... appropriate. Yeah, yeah. And what happens if you have an angry client? Well, it's happened. And uh, not very often, I'd have to say, but there was one instance where a client, I, I took on a client who I later found out was actually psychotic. He had serious mental problems. And he came to me with this project that he seemed to be interesting. It was about um, wanting to relate his work to quantum mechanics, which is a kind of preoccupation of mine. And I um, probably failed to over, you know, see a few warning signs. And we started on the work. And he seemed pleasant enough, and we worked out a few ideas. But he kept coming back. Just when we thought we'd had a solution, he kept coming back and, and adding more to it. And it was getting more and more complicated, a bit like those drawings on the wall, uh, the Nash drawings in the, in the movie, The Beautiful Mind. I don't know if you've seen that, they kind of spiral out of control. So at some point I said, look, I, I don't think this is, this is working. I, I feel guilty about you know, taking your money because I don't think we're closing on a solution here. I think we need to take a rest and, and I think I, I might not even be the right person for this, this job. You, know, you might need to find someone else. And he switched from being this charming, you know, well, relatively charming chap to a complete you know, raving maniac. He just went, berserk and started threatening me and um, we were sitting like this you know and we'd been sitting at the computer and he just went off at me and without any I just went into this you know and uh, it was quite amazing to be confronted with this um, this raving loony obviously dangerous um, threatening me and telling me you know I was a terrible person and nobody understood him and why didn't I listen and you know all this stuff and there was a reaction in my body. I was getting ready. I was the fight or flight thing was happening. I was being adrenalized. And, but there was somewhere in me where I was just, well, the space was just, I was containing him. I was just mm. being space for him. And there was a sense w- in which I felt this very, very deep invulnerability. It's mm. very strange. Mm. And um, he ran out of steam after a while because I wasn't giving back either fear or resistance. He, he just kind of ran out of steam and left the office. And I never saw him again. And my business partner, Jilly, um, 
sitting on the other side of the room and witnessed all this. And she said, what did you do to that guy? <laughs> and of course, I hadn't done anything. No. It was just that I hadn't joined in with, the, with, the, um, with this. Mm. I just stayed with that. And it wasn't a conscious choice to do that. It was no. like that just, because I'd been practicing it all, because it, I'd been using it, it was just there. Yes, know. it wasn't a technique you were using, no. it was a spontaneous reaction. Yeah, it was just the, where you go when, when it gets nasty. You know. or, you know. And wh one other uh, question, Sam. You play guitar, how does it help you? Does it come into playing the guitar, seeing who you are? I think it does. I've been playing for a long time, since I was 13, so it hasn't really improved my technique, uh, although it does make me, I found, less interested in virtuosity for its own sake. That's interesting. I'm not so much interested in, uh, in being impressive virtuosically. But the main thing is it takes away from me a lot of the, when I'm in performance, it takes away a lot of the stage fright that I used to suffer from, quite badly, actually. Um, the first time I noticed it was not, after, not long after you showed me this, and I went on stage for a concert, and I, I remember feeling that something was not quite the same. And I realized, oh, I'm not terrified. <laughs> and I sat down in, in the, on the stool on the stage, and I noticed that the, the hands playing the, um, the guitar were coming out of this void. Mm. And it was, of course, it was the, the void playing the guitar or the space or whatever. And I thought, what can go wrong? And this, the same space that was doing that was containing all of the audience and the whole venue. And it was just, and I was, in a way, I had a front row seat, you know, to this. Uh, it wasn't entirely passive, I won't, it, but there was, there was a sense that uh, I didn't have to worry and it was going to be fine. And, sh and sure enough, it was. Not only with the playing, but with the relating to the audience between the. the the tunes and that, and it just went very well. And since then, I've much more enjoyed playing to, to, I don't do it professionally, but every now and then playing a gig, it's much more fun, less, uh, less scary. So this simple vision has, has become, if you like, central in your life. Yeah, I think it, it's just um, the way things, I mean, it's true, you know, mm. it's true. So it's not a question of, um, you know, using it here and using it there, and it's good for this and it's good for that. Mm. It's just what's what's true. So, I can either choose to um, well, not even choose. I can I can notice that, you know, and and live from that, or not. And it seems to me that noticing it and living from it is much better uh, for me and everyone around me. Actually, mm. it's very compassionate to live from here because you're less of a pain in the ass, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> And we've had a lot of fun working together on the website and yeah. so on, uh, working together, sharing this with whoever is interested. Mm. The website's been extremely rewarding, I must say. Mm. To be involved in that project has been one of the great privileges of my life. It really makes me feel like I've been able to contribute something useful to the bigger, you know, my species, so to speak. And I thank you for that opportunity. The content on that website is just amazing. I've worked on other things that have been, you know, worthy, but... I think that this way has a potential to be a catalytic in the, in the bigger picture of, of mm. um, helping our species get out of the, the jam it's in at the moment. Because someone can just go to the website and do the pointing and they've got it. We have evidence of that, don't we? Lots. <laughs> and our Skype meetings too are just wonderful, connecting up with others mm. who share this. Mm. Yes, the Skype meetings are great because it, it is uh, something that is helped by... Uh, its social aspect, 
like this gathering here and mm -hmm. like the little groups that we hold around the world. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to practice this in solitude, but to, to do this, sit together and, and, and talk together from this. Mm. The void talks to itself. It's Doesn't wonderful. it? Mm. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Mm.